guys, welcome to week five, which is love poems. And Tim, I see you have joined miraculously right away. So well done on you. That's the best you've ever managed to get in here right away. And hey, Dick. Hey, Mark. How are you guys doing? I'll go ahead and first as well. I'm like way over prepared for the space today. I have to go ahead and let you guys know because I'm super excited about this topic. And Tim, how are you doing today? Good. Hey, Katie, how you doing? I'm doing great. I have both coffee and green tea and also water. So I am prepared for any sort of beverage need I should have, I guess, except a more interesting one. <laughs> well, I only have my Americano right here, but I have a full glass, so I'm ready to go. Well, I'm jealous of the Americano. This is like weak and coffee that's both too weak and too strong. Unlike the poems we are going to read today, I hope. Hey, great segue. <laughs> Do you want to, uh, let's start out with a, an opening poem. And this is the most popular love poem on rattle.com. Uh, and the interesting thing is every year this poem is, is one of the most read just by page views. And I think most people who read this don't know that the poem by Matthew Oldsman is actually written for V.B. Francis, who also had a poem in this issue. And I don't know for sure either way, but I'd like to think that, that Vivi didn't know this poem was coming out until the uh, poem appeared in the issue. But this is Mountain Dew Commercial Disguised as a Love by Matthew Oldsman. Here's what I've got, reasons why our marriage might work. To think, but write poems about bullets and gravestones. Because you yell at your keys when you lose them and laugh loudly at your own jokes. Because you can hold a pistol, got a pig. Because you memorize songs, even commercials, from 30 years back and sing them with vacuuming. You have soft hands. Because when we moved, the contents of what you packed were written inside the boxes. Because you think swans are overrated. Because you drove me to the train station. You drove me to Minneapolis. You drove me to Providence. Because you underline everything you read and circle the things that are important. And put stars next to the things you think I should think are important and write notes in the margins about all the people you're mad at, and my name almost never appears there. Because you make that pork recipe you found in the Frida Kahlo cookbook. Because when you read that essay about Rilke, you underline thing except the part where Rilke says love means to deny the self and to be consumed in flames. Because when the lights are off, the curtains drawn, and an additional she is nailed over the windows, you still believe someone outside can see you. And one day, five summers ago, when you couldn't put gas in your car, when your fridge was so empty, not even the leftovers or condiments, there was a single 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew, which you paid for with your last damn dime, because you once overheard me say that I liked it. And that was Matthew Olson's poem, A Mountain Dew Commercial Disguise as a Love Rattle, number 31. And that's the most popular love poem uh, on Rattle. It's had, I don't know, 80,000 page views or something like that. So what do you think, Katie? Is that a good love poem? I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to overuse the word love so much in this space today, but I do love that poem. I love the details that are in there and just, you know, the whole concept of the fact that uh, loving about someone is their oddities and their peculiarities as time goes on. So I definitely do. I also am curious. I mean, I'm sure Mountain Dew came calling after that poem and gave them an incredible endorsement, right? Yeah, that, that's, why, <laughs> that's why we're all rich now. It's because... Um... They gave us so much money for that poem. So thank you, Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this has been brought to you by Mountain Dew, a drink that I do not like. Yeah. <laughs> not a fan of that one. But anyway, hello to everybody that's joined. Hey to George, who's also joined us here, and Carlos Schwartz. Thanks for being here as well. And so I wanted to go ahead, too, and talk about, you know, it's funny because you take things for granted, right? And it should be obvious, a love poem, you know, what, what a love poem actually is and what it entails. But of course, there are many different types of love. So I guess I would start out and I would be curious to go ahead and go over to Dick Westheimer. He has written some amazing love poems, I think, and be curious what he thinks constitutes a love poem. Well, I think uh, hi, hi, Katie and Tim and everybody. Um, just look, I always look forward to uh, Thursday at three now that's a, it's a, a appointment listening um i think last week i texted something or, or tweeted something like isn't every poem a love poem and tim uh, replied to the tweet something like of course you'd say that or something like that um but uh 
I I don't know. I don't know. You know, like I, I think yeah. I, I saw that somebody shared that my my poem about um, um, the nearly new moon and the crescent Earth as a love poem. Maybe that was you, Katie. And I hadn't actually sort of considered that because I was sort of like boxed into the view that love poems were ones that involve some sort of uh, romance and or you know some 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 sort of um, yeah, romantic love, but then you know that sort of opened my eyes to the notion that love, love, obvi obviously when I read it now, it is it is a love poem, um, just not not about mating as it were. Um, so I don't know. I I I I I, I um, go back to that definition of pornography from uh, Potter Stewart, whoever whoever it was, uh, saying, "I know it when I see it." or I know it when I write it. Um, but I do know that personally I am, uh, you know, I am drawn to those images. And it's not that we have, you know, that my wife and I have a particularly, you know, like intensely romantic love life. It's just that that's a part that speaks to me when, 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 uh, when I, I see some, uh, something becomes a metaphor for love. Well, I think when I first read The Nearly New Moon and the Crescent Earth, it was, it was to me, it was like, it's so interesting hearing you talk because, you know, you get to say you're the one who wrote the poem. But when I read it, so of course it was uh, published by Rattle uh, and it was a PR poem initially. It was in response to a telescope uh, picture, right, of the, the web or the Hubble. And you can answer that and then I'm going to force you to read it also. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, forcing a poet to read uh, her his own work is, you know, sheer torture. Um, but, uh, uh, no, no, it was a picture taken from, um, uh, the Orion spacecraft or Artemis spacecraft, uh, uh, returning, uh, coming from around the backside of the moon and about to return to earth. And it caught, um, the moon, uh, giant in giant form as a, you know, a crescent, um, and in the distance a blue marble, also a crescent because of the way the sun was on it. Um, and yeah, it just it just sparked this notion of how how things large and small are attracted to each other. I mean, you know, it, the, the the we we take gravity uh, among the orbs in space for granted, right? It's just like, of course, you know, these things are in orbit around each other. But when you think about what connects them, it. I, it it's just it's as ineffable in some respects as love. Well, that's great. We have to hear this poem now. We're all like, we couldn't be more eager. So go ahead, please, Dick, and read your beautiful okay. poem. Uh, the nearly new moon and the crescent earth. I ask Google if gravity is a part of our wave. Instead of responding, it shows me a photo of the crescent earth seen from beyond the moon, then asks me if I am happy, if I am more moon than earth. And I think moon. Definitely I am moon today, a quarter million miles from any of my brood, which is not much farther than I normally feel from here in Ohio, and them living in warm homes, one with a cat sleeping at his feet, another snugged under blankets with her lover, watching the snow fall out their frosted window, a third tucking her loose-toothed boy in bed before catching up on her work. Their mother is paying bills in the other room, and I am drawn to all of them, like the moon is to the earth so far away, each of us one from the other. But our orbits remain stable, and Google is right. was right. We are drawn by neither particle nor wave, but by some strong force not subject to the laws of physics. This is what I imagine the moon feels, looking back at the blue jewel it was born from. And Earth, too, is constantly tugged by the orb in its orbit, as each of us is held so warmly by the other. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dick. It's a beautiful poem from uh, Poetry Spawn and Rattle. And it does, that, that metaphor at the end is so great. And there's so many different 
ways that love exists. Uh, we didn't, uh, love poems issue back in rattle number 43. And so the secret of issues is we have no idea what we're gonna get with any issue that we do with a, with a tribute theme like that. We just ask for poems and then see what we get. And we had poems just all across the map, poems about, you know, love for a father as they're putting him in a nursing home, poems about, you know, family, poems about children, um, you know, and then traditional love poems, um, all sorts of metaphors. It was really interesting to see the variety that people sent in and qualified their poems as love poems, because that's what they were labeling. They were submitting them for that contest. And interestingly, I was thinking about uh, this topic of what constitutes a love poem versus a poem about love. Like, is there a difference? And um, I don't know, Katie, do you think there's a difference? Is there, is, is it the same thing as a poem about love? That's really interesting. I think for me, it's, you know, if you unravel the poem all the way, what's at its core, and if it's love, it can be any, any form of love, uh, I think for me, and still constitute a love poem. But of course, when you say love poem, everybody just instantly goes to romantic love poem, which I was curious too to ask you, Tim, how many love poem submissions of like the more traditional, like a romantic love poem submission do you feel normally? Is that something where people are writing a lot of that or is that so passe that that's not as much the case anymore? No, I think that's pretty rare. We don't see very many poems like that. I mean, if, you know, a few, maybe one, one or two a year we end up publishing. There aren't that many. Um, it depends how. I mean, there are a lot of poems about the complexities of relationships. I think that's a very common topic. But I think there's a sense maybe that love is too simple a thing to write about. We need to change that. We're going to change that right in the space right now because I think there should be more poems written about love than any other thing. I think there should be more poems about love than death. And I think that we're just going to tackle that. And by the end of the space, we will have made that come true, I think is the plan. <laughs> uh, Katie, can I, can I jump in here? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, I, I, I would not necessarily make a distinction between a love poem and a poem about death, because so often, at least in my life, the, those things are, you know, the notion of mortality is interweaved with love. Um, and uh, to Tim's question about, or I, I don't know if it's Katie or Tim's question about, uh, it, does a love poem have to be about love? And Absolutely not. You know, it, it's, um, you know, as the poem that I just read that you identified as a love poem, it's not about love. It's about sort of distance and, you know, what draws people together. Um, um, you know, I, I, I feel much more love in a, in a love poem that is not necessarily directly hitting it on the head than one that just sort of teases out the complexity of relationships. And I think any love poem, the, it, it's rare for me at least to like a love poem that doesn't have some complications in it because then, it's, then, it, then it is sort of an idealized, you know, roses are red, violets are blue type, um, type poem. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned um, death being involved in love. Because when I was looking at what poem I might read to open it off, the, the first love poem, my favorite love poem that I thought of was To Earthward by Robert Frost. And that poem, if you, when, in looking back at it, is what the regular interpretation of it is. And it's a poem about aging and death. Uh, it's about growing old. But, but to me, I've always read it as a poem about growing into the complexity of love, like growing from the, the, um, the simple sort of crush version of love that we have when we're young and then, you know, moving on into the, the complications of actually having a life together and having, you know, resistance and, and the, the, the more complex love that we get as adults. And um, so you got something to say, Katie? I was going to make sure you're going to read the poem. I was like, yeah, literally <laughs> unmuting myself. It's like, don't you keep talking to the degree without reading us this poem. So yeah, read this. great. Yeah. So this segue. is a, uh, yeah, it's one of the one of the poems that just memorized for me because the the music is so good in it. Um, but yeah, this is a Frost to Earth word. He I think he published it in 1923, maybe. Um, this is to Earthward. Love at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear, and once that seemed too much, I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. The flow of was it musk from hidden grapevine springs down hill at dusk. I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. 
I crave strong sweets, but those seemed strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. Now no joy but lacks salt that is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. I crave the stain of tears, the aftermark of almost too much love, the sweet of bitter bark and burning clove. When stiff and sore and scarred, I take away my hand from leaning on it hard in grass and sand. The hurt is not enough. I long for weight and strength to feel the earth as rough to all my length. And you can see that poem. I mean, if you talked about it in, a, in class in high school or wherever you read it, it's about, you know, wanting to re-experience the, the, the intense feeling of youth and then having to like sort of work harder at it and into appreciating the pain and difficulty of life more as you get older. But it feels like it's all about that in love too. Yeah, that's a super good point. I really, I hadn't thought about the necessity of kind of all the films I think have an element of death and time because otherwise you have kind of a tuck everlasting scenario where, you know, the importance of love is that our time is limited. If it were not limited, then the importance of love would, uh, you know, it could just go on being happy. For, that's not very interesting. Just like how, you know, perfume has bad notes in it to kind of ground everything and make it come back to something meaningful. So yeah, there, there has to be a has to be an end to every sentence, or else it has no meaning. And there has yeah. to be an end to love, or else it has no meaning in a way. Yeah, but not if you're Shakespeare, because his love goes on as it does in Sonnet 18, which is one of my favorite love poems. But I think that next we should hear from Cries, because you know, in terms of talking about what constitutes a love poem, I was very curious. He has a collection of NFTs, and Cries also has a great collection of normal poetry where he is Mark Fitzpatrick, but he also has his online name of cries, which I think, you know, we need the board ape in here representing the NFT crowds. <laughs> but I would love for you to read your NFT if you think it's a love poem. And then also for anybody that wants to look at the NFT, it is uh, pinned at the top or actually I'm scrolling through and I may not have, but it's going to be pinned in just a second as he reads it. I'm I'm still reeling a bit, to be honest, from Tim's comment that there has to be an end to love or it has no meaning. Like that's that's uh, something I'm going to be dwelling on here for the rest of the day. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I think I fall into the same camp as Dick. Like I don't know if he meant that isn't every poem a love poem, but um, I certainly, I guess, am slanted that way in that I just figure – you know, if it's not like specific love person or, or something that's, you know, imbued with sentiment that it becomes something you love, like an object or like a non-specific love, but this, this zest for life, I think that kind of just is behind creative acts in general writing or you know, anything artistic really. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, a piece of art, uh, in the world, in my humble opinion, that, uh, doesn't have some sort of love at its core. Um, you know, maybe just like in the wider sense of Eros, like life energy. So I think what I wanted to do is, so I'll, I'll read Garden Wall. It's a pretty short poem. Um, but I wanted to start actually with a, a reading that jumps from the more specific uh, to something a bit more amorphous, like from kind of uh, specific love to broader love. Um that I think has the same flavor as Garden Wall. And this is a, a little passage from All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. And, and this one, I think, is um, kind of captures that sentiment. So here we go. He remembered Alejandra and the sadness he'd first seen in the slope of her shoulders, which he'd presumed to understand and of which he knew nothing. And he felt a loneliness he'd not known since he was a child. And he felt wholly alien to the world although he loved it still. He thought the beauty of the world were hid a secret. He thought the world's heart beat at some terrible cost, and that the world's pain and its beauty moved in a relationship of diverging equity, and that in this headlong deficit, the blood of multitudes might ultimately be exacted for the vision of a single flower. So that I think is a bit of a mood setter for Garden Wall because I, I do think Garden Wall is a is a love poem, but in that vein of just you know you can't help but love life. Um, there's just so much to experience, you know, the bad and the good, and 
and at the end it's all worth it so that's that's the love i see in this poem at least from the writer's perspective although i think of course you know every reader brings their own set of um circumstance and and views to everything they read so so this is garden wall the sea was wine and the merry devils smiled but no one saw me careth and the sky gasped like a poet laughing and the birds forgot the garden wall as tears melted and poured from stovepipes lit red as pain the language of being and there is no justice in the sea. Well, that's really great. And I was curious too, could you share like the art behind the words that you went with for this NFT too? I think it yeah. really enhances it. Yeah, so um, so that that's my third book. Uh, it's called Twilight Maps. And I wrote that during, I guess, the kind of second half of lockdowns and COVID. And I didn't really realize it until um, looking back at the book there's a lot of photography and and masked imagery in the book and just a lot of kind of acceptance like i guess if i had to look at kind of the subtext of the photos because that book is a very photo heavy book it's very you know art infused and uh, i think there's just a lot of that you know deep acceptance and you know i guess maybe masks is a little too on the nose from but it was just uh you know what was in the zeitgeist so i think that just crept into whatever resonated with when I saw the image, I'm like, that matches the, that poem. And this image just really jumped off the page to me as, of course, there's the obvious that like, there's a waves in the background, but, you know, just that figure being on the shoreline kind of surrendering to whatever life wants to offer, I think really uh, married well with that particular poem. Yeah, it definitely did. And I have your book in front of me. And I honestly, I didn't realize. So did you take all the photography that is in? Because it's like, it's a book that's, let's see, it's around, it's 150 pages. And uh, the poems are overlaid over photography, which is something I love to do with NFTs. Um, but I didn't even realize that you took the photos in there. That's really impressive. No, no, I'd, I'd love to take uh, credit, but I, I selected them from, um, so Pixabay and there's, you know, there's a few different free for use photography websites, but then I, I put my graphic design hat on and did some recoloring and, you know, reverse color imaging and, and things and overlaid some interesting geometry patterns I thought were cool. But I think that's uh, that might be a topic for a different day, but that's, one of the things I love about Web3 is, is this book was published before I really got into NFTs and understood what was possible for artists to do in Web3 and in, in NFTs. So now um, that, so that poem is on foundation as an NFT, but I've tried my damnedest to, to get to the artist who took that photo, but I just haven't been able to. So when that one sells, if it does one day, I'm, I'm going to dedicate um, the proceeds to, some sort of a, a foundation. There's, there's many like Pleaser DAO and there's different organizations in Web3 that help artists um, get funding and grants that they need to kind of get themselves, you know, bootstrapped. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of free um, in that book. If I could have done it again, knowing what I know now, I definitely would have worked with some some NFT photographers and, and done, you know, revenue splitting and that kind of thing because it's obviously a, one of the great things about Web3. But again, that could be a topic for a different day. Yeah, I love it because every time I talk to you, we end up with another idea for the next space. So it's just like <laughs> next time next time I invite you to speak, I should just be like, oh, and hey, by the way, just let us know in the future. Always have great ideas. Happy great. to be here, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering too, George, what your thoughts on writings are. We haven't heard from you yet on Love Poems. Well, um, I, I gravitate more towards when, 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 I, when I think about love poems, I think more about poems where uh, people see love everywhere. For example, I'm, I'm thinking of, of uh, Song of Myself. Uh, uh, when, I, when I hear Song of Myself, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's like everything is love. You know, there's, there's love in the grass, there's love in this, there's love in that. And so it's more sort of a pantheistic thing that I, that I think about. Uh, another another one that that is similar to that is the stuff by George Herbert, uh, when he writes a lot of stuff about he's very religious and well, I mean I think he was a, a 
pastor or, a, 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 or you know, he was in the clergy back, back way back in the day. Uh, and, uh, and so he has, he infuses a love of God within a lot of, um, I think most of his writing, but the way it comes out, it comes out very, you know, in a wonderful way that, that blends in things from the natural world. Like he talks about a, a brindled cow or something about it, something about a cow with its spotted, its spotted spottedness and that there's a beauty in that. And so uh, that's what I think of more. I don't think so much about the, about sort of one-on-one -on -one love. I, I think more about, I guess, a pantheistic kind. Yeah, that's a good point. I was thinking about picking some of Song of Myself because I'm a huge Whitman fan. And that has always been, you know, how I try to approach the world basically is, you know, with curiosity and wonder, like we're so often speaking about as poets. And I think it's just a necessary part of writing good poems is noticing small things. I mean, just like in the poem that Tim read at the beginning, the Mountain Dew commercial disguised as a love poem uh, by Matthew Alsman, you know, looking at the details and really taking wonder in the things that don't make sense inherently by themselves, I think is super important. And Future Dora, welcome to the stage. Thank you for joining us. I was curious what your thoughts are about what you've been hearing as us continually talking about love. I am bullish on the subject, I can't lie. Um, I haven't been in the space too long to give feedback yet, but um, just to what Odd Writings was saying, um, for me, I see love everywhere or just that energy that fulfills my writing or moves the pen so yeah i'm excited for the topic to hear what everybody has to say oh great i think that i'm gonna uh, put tim on the spot <laughs> and he made such an awesome thread of love poems and it was way more thorough and way more impressive than my tiny little piddly dinky thread and i think that you know you should share another one with us possibly actually i could really put you on the spot and ask you to share one of your own Hmm. Well, I think, you know, I was thinking about this whole concept of what is a love poem. Um, and, and I think maybe there's like two, there's like a subset of love poems, which are love poems, you know, just like the first poem that we talked about that could be used as a, as a Hallmark card, you know, for Valentine's Day, that type of thing where you're going to give it to somebody and have it be meaningful. And there's a whole way to go about doing that. That's really interesting. And then there's poems about love too, which are separate and, 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 you know, as, as all poems are celebrations of, of life. Um, but the one you asked me to maybe read is uh, Triolet on the Grass, which is um, something we wanted to talk about, about form in love poems, right? And how much you know, the form can determine the work and how much, you know, rhyme and meter and, and structure can matter. And um, I know this poem to me, it's a, it was an ekphrastic poem that was based on Luncheon in the Grass, the Manet painting if maybe kitty you can describe it if you're familiar better than me but uh there's there's two women uh who are naked two men fully clothed sort of having a luncheon and uh the the painter is sort of observing them and but what's striking to me uh you know the scandalous part is the clothing and all that but what's striking to me is uh, the way the woman is looking out of the canvas almost uh, is there anything more you want to say about that painting because you're the art expert around here uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say too, when I first studied it in art history in college, it's really a painting that uh, is used to express the difference between being naked and nude. So uh, nudes, you know, a six portraiture type thing that went out through throughout all art, um, where the woman is by herself, but she's nude, and it's not considered anything, but her being with men that are fully clothed. And not only full, but like they're wearing suits and she's just chilling on the grass by the spilled picnic naked as opposed to nude. And that's, uh, it was an incredibly controversial painting at the time. I think it didn't make it into the Paris Salon like so many of Manet's paintings. And I could go on way too long about Manet because he is like my favorite artist. So <laughs> please you pick to write an acrostic about this. Them. Yeah, flipping through, I think there's some website that's like randomart.com or something, and you just click random the random button, and a new piece pops up. And, and but and knowing nothing about art history myself, I mean, what was striking about that painting was the expression of the woman looking out at you as if out from the painting. And it seemed to me that that is exactly how love works. That process of falling in love—it's like somebody 
suddenly is staring at you from outside of the tapestry that you've been looking at life. And there's sort of this like artificial distance everything has. And all of a sudden someone pops out of the painting and stares at you. And so I was thinking about that. And then I wrote this triolet. And if you know, if no triolet is a form, it only has eight lines and there's a lot of repetition in it. It's a French form, which seemed to fit for a, for a trio, for a Manet painting, big frastic poem. But uh, here we go. This is triolet in the grass. Look at me, you fool. You look at me as if it weren't to look at you. My eyes are blue. What do they see? Look at me, you fool. You look at me. Our plans lie scattered on the grass's sea. Everything you ask, you know, is true. Look at me, you fool. You look at me as if it weren't to look at you. So that is my tree in the grass. I think that, I mean, that, that captures the feeling of love for me, I guess. Yeah, that's such a great poem. I really like it. We should say, too, that that was from a prompt, because you give a weekly prompt on the Rattlecast. And so anybody looking for writing prompts, I love writing them every week. I know Dick Westheimer writes at least one every week and also enjoys the prompts, too. But so talk, Kitty, about um, you were mentioning uh, when we were talking before about couplets and, and the, different, the way different forms feel like they fit love poems better than others. So what can you say about that? Yeah, I really have realized that for me, uh, poems that are written in couplets that are love poems for their resonance, because I like the idea of it, you know, being a couple, particularly for, you know, talking about more romantic uh, love poems, you know, seeing a poem in the format of there are two lines, there's a space, there are two lines, you know, it, it really brings together in mind, it puts you in the idea of thinking about pain. And I think that that's a super effective format. And then I think rhyme to it really, you know, can hit and help help to make it impact you in the same way that a really amazing song does, or you know, really amazing love, you know, can impact you in that way too. So I personally love that. I mean, the the quintessential form, of course, for a love poem is a sonnet, and I love sonnets as well. So I'd be curious to hear from other people about what forms or you know techniques they think can really help make a love poem across without coming across as trite too yeah go ahead cries you got your hands up that was very polite you don't even have to raise it here we're all friends thank you oh, cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm canadian it's force of habit <laughs> <laughs> that's fair then. that's fair yeah so i i've never thought about uh couplets or, or rhyming in that context like kind of like a a subtext of of couples i think that's really really cool um I for for love of another type poems like very specific like romantic or erotic poetry I think I I tend to also like free verse like very kind of breathless um like not a lot of time for readers to catch their their breath as they're reading through like maybe some extra ands maybe longer lines where it kind of them out of their minds and kind of into their bodies a little bit more which I think really meshes well with that kind of a poem so that's that's a, a personal preference of mine oh yeah that's super good I like that oh Pichadora yeah go ahead no I th I hope I'm understanding coupling right and I'd love to share a piece that I've written that's like basically a conversation between a man and a woman but they're kind of arguing and it's and I, in, in my head. Great, let's hear it. Um, it is called He Drinks. I deserve more, said to his life as he grabbed the knife. Keep going, I just might, tired of being a knight, saving you under my moonlight every night this fight. Moonlight, I just might, wife replied. As she grabbed the poured it all over the floor. Light it up so we can both die, tired of all of our lies, said the madman. You think you're a made man, you're just a caveman, collecting stones, women bones, please don't come back home. She starts to light her cigarette, hair falls as she removes her barrettes. I'm a moon man, not a caveman. I see your light, I become a blind man. Can't you see I belong in your sea? I'm blinded by the light, I can see I'm too bright. Hair becomes sun rays just to light up your days. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, he thinks. As he begins to hold her, he drinks. The end. 
Al, thanks so much for sharing that. The sounds like that sounds like the kind of poem that's just meant to be read aloud. So I'm glad you chose to go ahead and do it that way. I'd love to hear from Dick or George, whoever talks first. Go right ahead. I'm not going to battle it out for you guys. <laughs> go ahead, George. You sure? No, you, you go ahead. <laughs> after you. No, after you, Alphonse. No, please. After you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the th uh, you talked about couplets. And a lot of these poems have been about, first of all, a lot of them have, uh, you know, have been about paired relationships. But um, so often love poems and, and, you know, not explicitly love poems are about poems about the poet coming to grips with her or himself. That, that it, it's, not, it's not always... So I, yes, I am a practitioner of both love and lust poems, which involve an, a partner. But um, I think so many, and this goes back to what Kreis was saying, or Kreis was thinking I had said, is that that poems where a poet sort of comes into some uh, some appreciation for her himself, you know, which is often emerging from a place of. Um, of a sort of disunity with oneself are are amazing love poems. So what ones that I've not yet sort of figured have not yet emerged from writing, I think. But and I don't have any examples. But um, you know, we have the this this love about love about lust. Ones like uh, the Maxine Kuhlman poem that I sent you that has to do you know with bodies intermingling, and um, but I really think that the love and love poems comes from uh, the poet loving her himself. I'll, I'll just say that. I, you know, this is just an understanding I'm coming to and listening to folks talk and read. So so uh, what I got out of, out of a future Doris poem, it reminded me of, of a connection between love and insanity. Because she, she, you know, she mentioned a lot, or you're, since you're here, or the few future Dory mentioned a lot. The, the uh, you mentioned the lunatics, and the Luna, that you know, someone, the Luna is the moon, right? And your lover, one of those lovers was, you know, I follow the moon, and so you know, traditionally, a lunatic was somebody that followed the moon, right? You can see it in the word Luna; it comes comes from that. So, so the idea is that. You know, you're in you're in love, but there's a certain madness associated with that, and I guess that's connected with the non-rationality of it. You know, it's like you can reason about things, but if you really, really love something, you'll you'll start to do things that are irrational in that sense. So uh, that uh, just it it reminded me of that connection. I guess I just I just wanted to point the connection out there. Oh, that's a good point. I also like thinking about like just things that come up so commonly in love poems that I seek out and I end up writing myself to is just the concept of moons. Moons are in so many love poems that I am a huge fan of. I'm just realizing as we're, as we're going through this. I was thinking too that we've talked about form and everything that maybe I should go ahead and read an actual sonnet because I don't think we've had a sonnet on here. And I think that um, any space about love poems that didn't talk about Pablo Neruda would be a miss. So I think I should go ahead and read uh, one of him. This is going to be as translated by Mike Eisner. One thing that always amazes me about Neruda is I cannot imagine writing in a different language and then having in translations just so beautiful, which I'll always be envious of because I'm only English speaking. Wah, wah, wah. Anyway, now that that tangent is finished, <laughs> I read uh, Sonnet 17. I don't love you as if you were a rose of salt topaz or arrow of carnations that propagate fire. I love you as one loves certain obscure things secretly between the shadow and the soul. I love you as the plant that doesn't bloom but carries the light of those flowers hidden within itself. And thanks to your love, the tight aroma that arose from the earth lives dimly in my body. I love you without knowing how or when or from where. I love you directly without problems or pride. I love you this because I don't know any other way except in this form in which I am not, nor are you, so close that your hand upon my chest is mine, so close that your eyes close with my dreams. That's one of my favorite sonnets. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was thinking of this space since it's it's preceding Valentine's Day, and we'd be spending a lot more time talking about how to write an effective love poem, you know, for somebody else. And uh, we have had a bunch of good examples of that. And it, it reminds me of this uh, conversation or, or essay I wrote um, about public versus private poetry, and the idea that some poems are written for, um, you know, yourself or some private connection you have to somebody else. And, um, and then the poems we publish are written for strangers who don't know anything about the context of your relationships or what's going on. And it struck me reading the, the love poems that we were listing here that um, maybe the trick to writing a really good love poem, um, you know, a Valentine's Day type of love poem for somebody romantically is to um, have it be both a public and private poem at the same time. And so if you look back at the original poem, the, the Mountain Dew commercial disguised as a love poem. It was the details between the relationship, you know, in the relationship between the two, the poet and the person it was written about, that, that brought the poem to life. It's all that stuff that's that's quirky and strange and, and specific to that relationship coming out in the public way, in a very vivid way, that makes the poem work as both something that would be really sweet to receive, um, you know, to the person who it's written for, but also that we can enjoy it and be entertained and feel that love too, as strangers reading it. So it feels like maybe that's the, the difficulty with a lot of love poems is that a lot of times we want to talk about love in this abstract general way. We don't get into that specific detail, but it's that specific detail that makes it both public and private at the same time. Yeah, it's it's sort of, for me, kind of the line between if it's an inside joke, so to speak, or not. And if it's an inside joke, then that's not a poem that's going to work for anybody that maybe the person it's intended to be written to, but there's immense value in that too. I think it's important to say, you know, giving, um, you know, I used to write my parents this like terrible poetry when I was younger and, you know, they still have it. And in a sense, you know, that poem probably means more and has more worth, so to speak, than, you know, a much better poem that I write and do nothing with today. So I think that personal poetry, you can make a case that it's way more important than, you know, poetry we try to try to publish or share in a sense. It's so funny that you mentioned inside jokes because that was actually what that essay was called. I think it was in Writer's Digest maybe like 15 years ago, but it was called um, like telling jokes in a poetry or tell, like telling inside jokes at a poetry club or a, what is it called? Like telling inside jokes at a comedy club. That's what I'm going for. And, and the idea is, you know, inside jokes have their place. Like they bring people together and have, you know, a way that they deeply connect. But if you're overhearing it and you don't know what the jo inside joke is, it means nothing to you. And so many poems are written in a way, you know, that are shared or they're submitted to me at Rattle that are like inside jokes where I can't understand them. But they mean a lot to whoever does understand them. And I think we don't place enough emphasis on the value of being able to write and express ourselves in that inside way, private way between two people. And uh, there's a lot of value in, in writing somebody a, a love poem on Valentine's Day. That's a good point. I think I'm going to have to write some for my daughters to give them, I think, <laughs> as well. And maybe write some with them also, which would be fun. But yeah, there's so much. I mean, it's therapeutic as well as, you know, really, I think one of the nicest gifts you can give to somebody is a poem that's been written, you know, just for them. I mean, but maybe I'm just a poet, so I'm just, I, I continually write poems about other people and hope that, like, you know, what will come my way eventually if I write enough, right? It sounds to me like this inside joke thing, like, this is a bit of a revelation, like, craft-wise, because it, sometimes I come across inside jokes in poetry where it just, like, it's a lead balloon. It just doesn't resonate at all. But there's nothing more resonant than like that kind of intimacy between two people where they share an inside joke. So I think there's a a way of of writing it where the reader is maybe they're not in on the particulars of the inside joke, but they're in on the fact that it is an inside joke and they feel somewhat included. And that's I don't know how to maybe that's an essay in itself, like how to do that properly, but now that I think of it, like the poems I've I've read where that's a, a thing in the poem, like an insult that the, re the reader isn't kind of ostracized from, it just brings them so much closer to the to the spirit of the poem. And it, that's that's super amazing. I'm going to think about how I do that or don't do that very well. Yeah. And if you look back at the, the original poem, that, that Mountain Dew commercial disguised as a love poem, that's a master lesson in how to do that because almost every line is inside not joke, but a love item or something. And, uh, and, but we all get to access that. And that's what the beauty of the poem is and why it resonates with so many people. I think Carla Schwartz, do you want to talk? You're 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay. here. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? We can. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I, I thought I would, because um, I, I wrote a book recently. It's called Signs of Marriage, you know, and it's um, a bunch of uh, kind of love poems or poems about couples that might be love between ducks and various things. But, um, but um, and one of them is a poem, really, Love of human Humanity. But uh, the first poem in the book, I thought I would read it because it, it is, um, it is uh, uh, a poem that is kind of a love poem, but also like a story. And, um, and it's called Stones. And if you go to my YouTube channel, uh, CB99 Videos, you could find the, um, there's a video of this poem, which is kind of cool. And um, so anyway, it's called Stones. Uh, you began with one rock mid-puddle of the front yard. We named it Rock Hudson. But then came two more to bookend the mud, Rock Around the Clock and Elizabeth Taylor. I loved the line of them the symmetry. I never questioned the origins. You just arrived there at our sunken front yard, one large rock in the wheelbarrow at a time until this was no random arrangement. You said you had one rock. The flat side always goes down so that hump side up a rock might settle into its new home. Next you made of rocks to guide the why of our two stone paths. A kind of smile, I said, a rock smile. And you smiled, and the next day, and the next, two more rocks to make the eyes. A few weeks later, a nose appeared, a little bent, a little sad, but a nose. Then the effort changed. You graduated from pry bar and shovel to blocks, straps, and a come-along. Soon you'd urge thousand-pound boulders to find their new sweet spot in our yard, most flat side down, until I told you I liked the flat side. So we pried, blocked, and tipped together until one flat face shone back at us. One morning you brought me to the backyard and showed me the aisle you'd created with the stones you'd moved. I said, well, if we ever get married, this will be our aisle. And you rolled your eyes, but later handed me something, palm-sized with a plainer face a glittery stone of mica and quartz. And that's my first poem in my book, Signs of Marriage. And, uh, you know, so it's sort of about, um, it, you could say it's about stones and you could say it's about love. And then I still feel like it has some uh, universal sort of not just um, the secret message kind of poem mm -hmm. to it. Yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. And too, another thing that, that came up thinking about this was uh, the you poems, the, the second person, the use of that, which, um, you know, makes for that intimate feel in love poems. A lot of times, I'm going to meet you, Carla. There's some background noise. But um, but yeah, so, so there's, we always talk in uh, our critique of the week on Fridays about the trouble with you poems is that there's so many options for who the subject is that it's, it's often hard to determine. Uh, whether or not you're talking to somebody directly or if you're using the you self you know, the second person self-referentially, you're just talking to yourself or if you're talking to the reader, there's a lot of ambiguity that has to be cleared up with those poems. But with love poems, we kind of know what they're about and who they're for. So that adds a level of intimacy when it's working on that level. Is there any to uh, talk about? Okay, there's one one thing that I was, we talked about a little bit yesterday was um, the fact that when I did, did my list, it was almost all men who are uh, writing the love poems. I think I included um, Ink Dark Moon, which is a wonderful book of uh, Japanese love poetry by two women um, from the 15th century. But uh, otherwise it was mostly men. And you and I, I was apologizing for that. And then you said that your list was mostly men too, right? Yeah, I did fortunately let you off the hook by saying reality is when I started looking at this, that I was disappointed that it was really men that were coming to mind uh, when I was looking at love poems. I'd be curious if anybody can you know, talk about particularly a woman that is a poet that wrote great love poems. Maybe Rihanna, we haven't heard from you yet. And we, I don't want to put you on the spot forcing you to name a poet. But if you happen to know anybody, we'd be particularly interested. Yes, I do, actually. I do, I do. So hello, everyone. I'm Rihanna Morgan. I apologize, KHD, for being late. Whew. So, um... Not at all. I'm so happy. Yeah, and also, Rihanna's being extremely kind because I showed up to her space 
literally like two minutes after it was scheduled to yesterday. So Rihanna, you are miles earlier than I was. Thank you. And there's no obligation. Anymore. Oh, yes, yes. No, I, I wouldn't have missed it. Wouldn't have missed it. I was just on a call that went too long. And so, yes, hello, everyone. And so, yes, I do have a, a woman named Elizabeth Barrett Browning who wrote, How Do I Love Thee? And yes, and so she she is one of my all-time favorites, one of my all-time favorites. And then Edna St. Vincent Millay is another one who writes beautiful poetry about love. So I do. Um, but honestly, if you were to ask me, um, oh, and then Sylvia Plath, I just thought of another one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> getting my my poetry love brain going today um yes and so uh edna saint vincent malay she let me uh think about that for a second let me think about that and then um i think i should have loved or i think i should have loved you is the edna saint vincent malay poem um and then Sylvia Plath is a love letter. Love letter is by Sylvia Plath. Well, those are fantastic answers. And I was going, I was almost late starting the space because I was stalking Elizabeth Barrett Browning's fascinating Wikipedia mm. page because I think she is one of the absolute most interesting poets, period, let alone the fact that she primarily wrote love poems, um, of course, mostly directed at Robert, Robert Browning, who they had a, yeah, they had a torrid affair, yeah. of course. And then um, she took on the fact that she was going to be disinherited by her father and just moved to Italy, eloped, did it, and then wrote amazing poetry. <laughs> well, she was already writing amazing poetry. That's how they fell in love. Right, but, right. Yeah. 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 How wonderful. Oh, my goodness. I love talking with people who love writers like they're our friends. I just, I just love that so much. I just love that so much. Um, but one of my absolute favorite love poems is called The Highwaymen. Um, and I'm sure if we ever saw or read Anne of Green Gables, we may know about this poem. Um, his name is, the poet is Alfred Noyes. The road was a torrent of darkness among the gusty trees. The moon was a ghostly galleon. Are we recognizing this poem? Um, yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. And it's a narrative poem. And it, so it tells a story of a highwayman and, and a woman and how they fall in love. And it's just beautiful. I just love it. It well, totally is. And it yeah, I was Sorry. just going to add, too. I mean, with a, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the, uh, the book is called Sons from the Portuguese because it was so scandalous. They had to pretend it was translations, <laughs> which is fascinating to me. Um, and I was actually thinking, because I didn't tell you, Kitty, I, I came to a, a realization where I think why there are love poems, it seems, written by men. And it took, I didn't realize this. I thought maybe, oh, I'm just being sexist for picking, you know, for the male perspective or something. But uh, it, it turns out, I think, we ask and rattle all the time, and especially in our contributor notes at the back of each issue, uh, but also um, in interviews, like why people start out writing poems. And it occurred to me, thinking about this, that it's very common for men to say that they started writing poems to impress women. And they thought that, you know, they say, oh, I wasn't a jock, I had nothing going for me, but I thought, I thought if I could write poems that women would like me. And I've never once heard a, a woman say that. And I think maybe the reason why is because men have a little bit of more motivation to write love poems because they sort of need to. Do you, what do you, does that resonate with you? think that might be true? I think that I need to know where these dudes were in high school because that was my high school experience and I kind of wish it was, but that's a really good point. I, I love that idea, I think. I think that there's also maybe something to the idea of not wanting to feel cliche as a woman, you know, um, like, oh, you're going to go sit there and write a love poem, uh, which hasn't stopped me. I write like 95% love poems in like five a day. But uh, <laughs> but I think that's a really interesting hypothesis, Tim. It really makes a lot of sense. And I think, uh, Dick, last time, are you at your hand up first to comment on that? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting that, um, Tim, that you went to, or that I, you didn't on purpose go to men who were writing love poems. But I find the ones written by women, I, I immediately went to women. Edna St. Vincent Millay, for instance, hers are so complicated and complicated with power and, you know, the dynamic relationship between men and women and her own strength. And 
you know, Jane Canyons have like, you know, all this complication, you know, where she's being very honest about, you know, the complications of, of, you know, uh, her mental health issues and, and love. And, and then the one that I shared, um, I think it was uh, Maxine Kuhlman, who of you know, like all the women poets, you know, the, the uh, early 70s was sort of like ostracized for writing love poems as if that was scandalous for a woman to be writing of that. But hers have like this, you know, like this complex sensuality to them that I think men sometimes are afraid to write about that they won't be, you know, that they'll be taken, you know, as, 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 you know, lusty men rather than poets. But I find that the women poets, you know, have lots of arms and legs going on in, in some of their love poems. That's a great point. And actually, too, uh, what I love about one of the two Maxine Kuhlman poems that you shared was that it is also written in couplets. So would you be up for reading After Love, one of the two that is pinned at the top of the space for us? Oh, sure. I just turned off my uh, microphone. Um, yeah, and th this is an example of, you know, arms and legs, right? Um, After Love by Maxine Kuhlman. Um, Afterward, the compromise. Bodies resume their boundaries. These legs, for instance, mine. Your arms take you back in. Spoons of our fingers, lips admit their ownership. The bedding yawns. A door blows aimless jar. And overhead, a plane. Sing songs coming down. Nothing has changed except... There was a moment when the wolf, the mongering wolf, who stands outside the shelf, lay lightly down and slept. Yeah, thanks so much for reading that. I think that's a great poem. And also, I realized upon you reading it that something I like to see in poems that are about love is kind of a, a duality in terms of like repeating a word that also like gives that inherent sense of a coupling, you know, between between two people, at least for me, because I'm always looking for way too much meaning in poems, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of just about anything Maxine Kuhlman writes, who, who writes about very, you know, embodied things. You know, the first poem of hers I encountered was the excrement poem, and it's up, you know, it's it's just everything is about the essence of things, the, the physical essence of things. Yeah, that one may not have been as great a pick for the love poem romance. Well, I don't know. It's about, it's about her love for excrement. You know, that's another thing. <laughs> well, we could have gone there, I suppose, but in the end, we didn't. Uh, which we'll have, to, we'll have to go ahead and wrap up now that we are nearing the one hour mark and I am so wedded to the time because as Tim told us earlier love is meaningless without death basically hey, but what about you writing a poem reading poem Katie weren't you going to read one of your own okay I'll read one of my own poems it's funny with how Dick was joking about how every poet just loves to read their poem but it's been a process for me like I'm still a little nervous but you guys are kind to me so um I guess it's fair that I that I read one if that's okay so a form that I, I don't know if I did it or whatever, but that I like writing in is a sonnet minus one. So it's 13 lines where I took away a line at the end because the effect is such that I'm writing mainly in couplets and then the last line uh, stands by itself, much like the Maxine Kuhlman poem actually that you just read, Dick, which I think gives a sense of, of something lost. It's um, an unrequited love poem that uh, we didn't really touch on that aspect of love, but I think that some of the strongest poems are like that where it's, uh, kind of more concentrated in a way when it's one person loving the other like kind of like a light beam or something like that so I will go ahead and read this it's not uh, pinned to the top because I've submitted this a ton of places <laughs> so I don't want to post it online but it is written in couplets in case you're wondering what it looks like so this is called when x and y intercept after reading your words I am insatiable with fruit a peach still warmed in the lap of a spot of sun Fuzzy visions of the math. We are too old, but God, I feel so young when I imagine all the fruit you must have eaten, how it coated your lips with syrup sipped, and how we have nothing together except to eat the same apple from far away. 
I calculate consuming unripe angles and whole equations raw, the weight of cherries, bell curve domes, attached in pairs that make me feel so damned alone. And somewhere you saw into a watermelon. The countertop is a sticky pond of pink, a serrated knife I've never seen, yet the metal intercepts me. The hands I will never hold, hold my own uneaten slice. Yeah, great unrequited love poem. Thanks for sharing that. Glad we got you to read one, Katie. <laughs> Thanks for forcing me to. I was like, if Tim doesn't tell me, I'm just gonna like close out the space. Nobody will know. Thanks for listening. I know. I was. I was waiting. I was waiting. Hey, before we go, uh, what do you want next week? Do you have any ideas? Yes, I was thinking that after on the heels of love poems, it would be great to look at poetic discovery, sort of more generally. So thinking about things that we've learned for while writing poems, which can be from like, you know, the nitty gritty where like, say I have learned a lot about uh, the anatomy of bells because I wrote a poem about bells all the way down to like, hopefully bigger discoveries than just factual anatomy of inanimate objects. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a topic I love. Looking forward to that one. Great. Well, I really appreciate all you guys joining us today and coming up to speak. Thanks, Rihanna, Cries, Fuchidora. George and Dick and Carla Schwartz. And then also in the audience, I see we have Joshua Eric Williams, who's a great haiku poet in particular. So thanks for coming out, everybody, and joining us as we discuss love poems. And most of all, happy Valentine's Day in a few days. And we're already celebrating because of this space. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys.